Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Uh, let's get into it. There's a couple of anniversaries. On December 5th, 1757, at the Battle of Luthen, Prussian King Frederick II, or Frederick the Great, if you prefer, won one of the most impressive victories of his storied military career using a diversionary attack and a sophisticated oblique maneuver to rout an Austrian army under Prince Charles of Alexander of Lorraine that was about twice the size of Frederick's force. Fully a third of the 66,000-man Austrian army was killed, wounded, or captured. Frederick's victory enabled him to move on to besiege the city of Breslau uh, in mid-December, uh, Breslau's fall left Prussia largely in control of Silesia and all but ensured its victory in the Third Silesian War, one of the many conflicts within the larger Seven Years' War. Uh, on December 5th, 1941, the Red Army under Georgi Zhukov began a major counteroffensive against the Nazi Wehrmacht in the Battle of Moscow. The combination of the Soviet military and a brutally cold Russian winter crippled the German forces, and the offensive ended on January 7th, 1942, with the exhausted Red Army having driven the Nazi line back once some 150 miles from the Soviet capital. On to the news in the Middle East. We start with Israel-Palestine, where Israeli military or IDF chief of staff Herzi Halevi told reporters on Tuesday that, quote, our forces are now encircling the Khan Yunus area in the southern Gaza Strip. Uh, the IDF is a couple of days into the Khan Yunus phase of its Gaza operations, and the aim seems to be to do to that city what it did to Gaza City during the previous phase, i.e. surround and obliterate it. Uh, dozens of Palestinians have reportedly been killed over the course of the day, although it is uh, hard to put much stock into those figures at this point, given the impossibility of counting casualties under these circumstances. Civilians have been fleeing south to Rafah, which is still under IDF bombardment and will likely be the focus of the IDF's next ground phase. Uh, even in peacetime, Rafah wouldn't be able to accommodate this influx of people, but under these circumstances, the city will be completely overwhelmed. Uh, there hasn't been much time to dwell on the potential for serious illness, but at this point, disease is perhaps as great a looming threat to Gazan civilians as future IDF activity. In other news, the IDF is besieging another hospital in northern Gaza, Kamal Adwan, for reasons that are unclear, apart from the fact that it's a hospital and this is what the IDF does. Uh, I haven't seen this mentioned outside of Al Jazeera, possibly because more uh, most attention is now focused on southern Gaza, or possibly because Western media already did the hospital standoff story and has moved on to the next episode. Uh, already uh, also getting relatively little attention has been the IDF's systematic destruction of Gazan public buildings, many of them presumably containing vital records that may now no longer exist, uh, whether intentional or not. And given that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is talking like he wants to reoccupy Gaza again, so it may well be intentional, the destruction of these buildings, which doesn't have any obvious military justification, could make it impossible for any Palestinian administration to resume governing Gaza. Uh, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller told reporters on Tuesday that, quote, the level of assistance that's getting into Gaza is not sufficient, end quote, and said that the Biden administration has, quote, made that clear to the government of Israel, end quote. Uh, the amount of aid that's entering Gaza since the expiration of the ceasefire appears to be greater than what was entering the territory prior to the ceasefire, but it's much less than was getting in during the ceasefire. And the lack of fuel, coupled with the resumption of hostilities, has made it significantly harder to distribute the aid after entry. Miller's language was a bit more pointed 
with respect to the Israeli government than the administration has typically used, but it's all part of a concerted effort to appear to care about Gaza's civilian population. Similarly, a U.S. Agency for International Development head Samantha Power flew to Egypt on Tuesday. She brought with her some $21 million in aid and a vague promise to set up a U.S. field hospital inside Gaza with no indication where, when, or how that might be done. The aid is dwarfed by the billions in military assistance the U.S. is providing and is planning to provide to Israel. But that, but again, it's the optics that are important here from the administration's perspective. Uh, building upon this theme, the Biden administration announced on Tuesday that it intends to begin putting Israeli settlers found to be involved in violence against Palestinians in the West Bank on a visa blacklist. Uh, the impact of this is much more symbolic than practical. Many West Bank settlers are U.S. citizens and aren't subject to a visa ban. And even Miller in his Tuesday press briefing talked about maybe dozens of potential targets. It's important to note here that the administration is taking this step because it does not believe these settlers will be brought to justice by the Israeli government, the same government that is nevertheless getting billions of dollars in U.S. weapons and munitions. And the French government on Tuesday froze the assets of Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's political leader in Gaza. It turns out that Sinwar doesn't have any assets that are under French jurisdiction, but Paris is hoping to get the ball rolling on a Europe-wide asset freeze that could impact Hamas's fundraising operations. In Yemen, the United Nations World Food Program announced on Tuesday that it's suspending operations in rebel-controlled northern Yemen. This decision comes one day after the WFP announced that it's ending its Syrian operations. We covered this yesterday. And the rationale here is similar. It's out of money. In this case, though, the WFP also cited disagreements with rebel officials, apparently over a proposal to downscale but not completely eliminate its operation as part of the problem. Uh, the agency is still running smaller programs in northern Yemen and is maintaining its full operations in government-held areas. In Lebanon, the Lebanese military said that Israeli shelling killed one of its soldiers and wounded three others on Tuesday. This is the first time the IDF has killed a Lebanese soldier since it began exchanging fire with Hezbollah amid the conflict in Gaza. Israeli forces appear to have been responding to a new round of Hezbollah attacks and struck an army outpost, I assume, mistakenly. On to Asia and Afghanistan. If that country's Taliban-led government is hoping to normalize relations with China, it's apparently going to have to undertake some political reforms. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson person Wang Wenbin uh, responded to a question about the possibility of recognizing the Afghan government on Tuesday by saying that, quote, we hope that Afghanistan will further respond to the expectations of the international community, build an open and inclusive political structure, and implement moderate and stable domestic and foreign policies. Uh, it is unclear what specifically Wang meant by expectations, but the uh, most obvious possibility, based on the totality of his comments, uh, would be reversing the Taliban's decision to ban Afghan women from all aspects of public life. Uh, no government has recognized the Afghan government since the Taliban retook power in 2021, but given the group's cordial relationship with Beijing and China's economic interests in, for example, Afghanistan's mineral resources, if any major world power is going to recognize the Taliban's legitimacy, it will likely be China. In Pakistan, a roadside bomb wounded at least five people, four of them children and two of those critically in the Pakistani city of Peshawar on Tuesday. There's no indication as to responsibility, but the location suggests jihadist militants, either Pakistani Taliban or Islamic State. 
On to Africa, and Guinea-Bissau African Union Chairperson Musa Faki Mahamat said on Tuesday that he, quote, notes with concern, end quote, Guinea-Bissau President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo's decision to dissolve that country's parliament following a National Guard uprising last week that Mbalo has characterized as an attempted coup. We mentioned the decision in yesterday's newsletter. Mahamat also said that he, quote, strongly condemns, end quote, that incident. Former Guinea-Bissau Prime Minister and current Speaker of the Dissolved Parliament, Domingo Simoes Pereira, criticized the dissolution order as a what he called a constitutional coup d'etat. Mbalo has also assumed control of the country's defense ministry and its interior ministry, which oversees the National Guard, both of which would normally report to the Prime Minister. Uh, it sounds like he's left the rest of the cabinet untouched so far, but of course that may change. In Nigeria, President Bola Tinubu said he says he has ordered an investigation into the apparently mistaken drone strike his military carried out in Kaduna State on Sunday night, uh, which was meant to target bandits, but at last count killed at least 85 civilians. The Nigerian army has taken responsibility for the incident, uh, with Commander Taurid Lagbaja saying that it was, quote, based on the observation of some tactics usually employed by bandits. In Uganda, the Biden administration announced on Monday that it's expanding a visa blacklist for Ugandan officials and it's creating a new one for officials of the Zimbabwean government. In both cases, the administration says it's targeting individuals accused of undermining civil society and mistreating minority groups. In Uganda's case, that especially means the LGBTQ plus community, which has been struggling under the draconian morality law the Ugandan government adopted earlier this year. Uh, the administration began imposing visa restrictions in the wake of that move, but widened uh, that project on Tuesday. Uh, as far as Zimbabwe is concerned, this was the administration's response to President Emerson Mnangagwa's re-election in August in a vote that was roundly dismissed as fraudulent by international observers. Moving on to Europe, in Russia, the Biden administration also expanded its Russia-related blacklist on Tuesday, adding a Belgian businessman and a related network of five other individuals and nine entities accused of helping Moscow obtain banned military use electronics. In addition to the sanctions, the administration also unsealed two indictments against said businessman, Hans de Gittere, uh, sorry if I'm mangling that, uh, and uh, in addition to this, it blacklisted an unrelated group of eight individuals and 11 entities with ties to the Belarusian government over a variety of allegations, including support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, the State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, told reporters on Tuesday that the Russian government recently rejected what he called a significant proposal from Washington that would have secured the release of two U.S. nationals in Rus Russian custody on spying allegations, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. Miller didn't go into detail. Uh, Russian officials have maintained that they will not trade Gershkovich until after he stands trial, but they also keep delaying the onset of a trial for unknown reasons. In the United Kingdom, UK Home Secretary James Cleverly flew to Rwanda on Tuesday to sign a new treaty in hopes of reviving the refugee deportation scheme that the UK Supreme Court struck down last month. 
There's no word yet on exactly what the accord includes, but presumably it tries to address the court's concerns around the principle of non-refoulement, or in other words, uh, some language barring the Rwandan government from redeporting asylum seekers after the UK deports them to Rwanda. The Rwandan government referred to the possibility of a joint tribunal, including Rwandan and UK judges, that would oversee asylum cases uh, and ensure uh, that rights are protected, uh, though deporting these people to Rwanda in itself probably violates those rights. Uh, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is desperate to turn Rwanda into the UK's asylum detention facility in an effort to discourage refugees from trying to enter the UK at all and in order to appease his conservative party's xenophobic wing. Elsewhere, a new analysis from the climate NGO Friends of the Earth estimates that Sunak's government, and this is a real shocker, so I hope you're sitting down, has the UK on track to miss its 2030 carbon reduction pledge. The group says that under current policies, the UK will have reduced its emissions by 59% from 1990 to 2030, uh, just a bit shy of the 68% reduction to which it is committed. Sunak, in another naked political gambit, has been walking back emissions reductions plans while insisting that the UK is still meeting its international obligations. And in the Americas, in Venezuela, President Nicolas Maduro said in televised remarks on Tuesday that his government is going to start issuing, quote, operating licenses for the exploration and exploitation of oil, gas, and mines, end quote, in Guyana's Essequibo region following this past weekend's referendum regarding Venezuela's claim over that territory. This is unsurprisingly causing some alarm in Guyana, but it's unclear how Maduro intends to actualize what he's treating like a binding annexation, even though the vote didn't actually involve anybody living in the Essequibo region. It's a, maybe that's just a technicality on my part. Uh, certainly, this is a situation to monitor, but I'm just not sure what Maduro's actual next step here is. Uh, and it's possible he really just wants to use the possibility of annexation as a sort of political rally and cry heading into next year's election. In El Salvador, Amnesty International issued a report on Tuesday asserting that the human rights situation in that country is as bad under current President Nayib Bukele as it has been at any time since the 1980-1992 Salvadoran Civil War. Bukele's crackdown on gangs and or his political opponents has involved tens of thousands of arrests, uh, many of the arbitrary variety and allegations of systematic brutality by law enforcement. It's also made Bukele extremely popular, specifically with respect to the gang piece, so popular that he's going to waltz to another term in office next year, even though Salvadoran presidents are legally prohibited from running for re-election. Doesn't seem to matter. Uh, and finally, in the United States, Inksticks Chloe Schrager reports on the toll that U.S. nuclear testing is still taking decades later on the people of the Marshall Islands. And I will read you a, a uh, excerpt of her piece. Tucked away in the azure waters of the northern Pacific, halfway between Hawaii and New Zealand, the remote chain of tropical islands, islets, and ring-shaped coral atolls seem the ideal proving grounds for the United States Cold War-era nuclear testing program. Between 1946 and 1958, a total of 67 nukes were exploded in the Marshall Islands, the equivalent of dropping 1.6 Hiroshima bombs every day for a dozen years. The 12-year bombing campaign vaporized entire islands and dotted lagoons with radioactive bomb craters forever displacing generations of Marshallese from their paradisical home turned nuclear wasteland. 
Islanders received direct exposure to poisonous fallout, starved in exile on two small islands with inadequate food supplies, and were later temporarily moved back to their irradiated homes to be unknowingly used as test subjects in human radiation experiments. Now the resulting cancers and mysterious birth defects have been passed on to the children of nuclear victims. After decades of cover-up and secretly held withheld information about radiation exposure, the United States still has not recognized the extent of the nuclear program's impacts or paid out full compensation to its victims. And uh, I will leave it there and leave you to read the rest. It is a, uh, I guess, on one hand, shocking, on another hand, entirely expected story. Um, there has been uh, an effort or there was some movement, I guess, on this issue as the Marshall Islands renegotiated uh, or negotiated a renewal, rather, of its compact of free, free association with the United States. Uh, but uh, most of the people uh, to whom uh, Schrager spoke with for this piece uh, said that they were dissatisfied with what the new renewed compact of association uh, has uh, accomplished in this area. Uh, they still feel like it's inadequate to uh, to the wrong that's been done here. And uh, again, I would I would urge you to read the piece. It's it's uh, quite something. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers and make this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.